His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, or, or, or possibly still burning from the furnace. Possible translation there. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and we pray that we would see who you are today and how you change who we are for the better. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one with eyes like a flame of fire. You see through us. You see into us. We, do not, we cannot hide from you and we should not try, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that your eyes are not cast upon us in hatred but in love. Lord, you, you love your people and care for us. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one whose feet are like burnished bronze, burning from the furnace. You are the great king, the great emperor, the God of the one empire that shall never end. The one true good king. Thank you, Lord, that your voice is like the rushing of many waters, like the waves on every beach in the world, all at once. Let us hear your voice today. Speak to us, Lord. Lift us up. Point us to you and lead us to walk in the light of your grace today. We pray it in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to grab a Bible, flick it open. We are in part six, I think. I'm losing count uh, of our series through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thanks, Ted. Uh, and uh, we're in... We're in the fourth of what we're calling uh, the royal edicts or the divine oracles of Jesus to his churches. If you don't know what I'm talking about with that, feel free to go back to part three of this series where we explained how we read these seven messages that we get in chapter two and three and how they speak. These are, just to, just to recap very briefly, these are real messages which are written to real Christians and they called them in the first century to obedience to Jesus Christ, and the true, who is the true king and the true God. Caesar, in their day, claimed to be king and claimed to be God. And indeed, it may have appeared that he made a pretty compelling argument for it. He kind of held all the cards. He was the ruler of the largest empire in the known world. In fact, it was how they defined the known world. Uh, in that part of the world. But Jesus writes to his churches and he gives them the whole of the revelation to show them that things are not as they seem in this world. There is only one Lord and it is not Caesar. These are messages which still speak to the churches today and call us to conquer Every, every one of these seven messages ends with a call to conquer or to the one who conquers. And they call us to conquer by following in the footsteps of our Saviour who went to the cross for us. In our day, there are uh, many powers and authorities which call for our highest allegiance. I don't know if you've noticed. There are all manner of idols in the modern world which call for our worship. 
which demand that we give them the place of first priority in our lives, that they become the thing that, above all other things, takes priority for us. And yet Jesus speaks to us as he spoke to these churches then, reminding us that there is one Lord and King. Today we come to the edict to the church in Thyatira, and, and compared to the cities we've looked at so far, we don't know an awful lot about Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira isn't, isn't one that we've got loads of historical data on, but there is one thing... I thought that was Charlie. Uh, there is one thing which we do have some degree of knowledge of. Thyatira was a city dominated by what, what they called trade guilds. Uh, now, that sounds like a, a fun kind of role-play game sort of, th- sort of term. You, you hear it and you go, oh, that's, that's nice. But, but uh, we've mentioned these already, but let me give you a little refresher. Um, Thyatira seems to have been a city where these things were especially strong, and the trade guilds were associations which regulated the practice of, uh, you might have guessed, a trade, a uh, specific trade. So, you know, you'd have like the, the Carpenters Guild, or the fridge mechanics guild. Obviously, you wouldn't have, but uh, but these sorts of things. And, and the more guilds you had in one city, the more controlled the trades were in that city. What that means is, if you were, uh, you know, a wool merchant in Thyatira, there's a more realistic one. You would only be able to operate your business legitimately in that city if you were a part of the guild, if you practiced it as a part of the guild. And for a Christian, that presented a really big problem because involvement in the trade guilds was intrinsically tied to worship. Involvement required attendance at guild celebrations, and these things were essentially worship feasts that were held in the temples of the patron gods of the guild. It necessitated involvement in the social gatherings of the guild, which involved outright sin in a way that would likely still shock most people in our culture today. Uh, parties with a, with a heavy mix of sexuality and religion kind of just tipped in together. So for a Christian, it was a big deal about whether you were involved in one of these things, do you see? To be involved necessitated compromise with the worship of the idols of the age. With the, not just with the idols, but also with the values of the age. To not be involved likely meant the inability to practice your work, to practice your trade, your business. It meant a blow to your reputation, and it very likely meant poverty. We keep running into poverty in a lot of these churches as a big issue, and one of the big reasons for that is that Christians couldn't be involved in these trade guilds and be faithful to Jesus. This is a big deal, right? Or was it? Maybe it wasn't. The church in Thyatira, they receive uh, what is one of the most comprehensive commendations. Uh, Jesus really compliments them and says they're doing well at the start here. Uh, One of the best of any, in 2.19, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your later works exceed your first. Thyatira is doing well. It's hard to avoid that as a possibility. Even in areas that other noteworthy churches of the day were condemned for, this church is doing really well. 
Ephesus, you might remember, back in the first message, they were condemned, what for? For their lack of loss of their first love, right? And yet Jesus says to Thyatira, I know your love and your faith. You're doing well. He says they are patiently enduring. Like Pergamum, they are holding out against persecution without denying the name of Jesus. And Jesus says they're not wearing out. Rather, what they are doing now is greater than what they did at the start. They're growing as disciples of Jesus. They're growing in honoring God in their life as a church. And yet there is one thing that risks all of that falling apart. Jesus says, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. To understand what seems to have been happening in Thyatira again, we need to understand the Old Testament background of what's happening here. Um, You might remember the Revelation contains more references and allusions to the Old Testament than it has verses. So you can't get your head properly around it without some Old Testament. And I want to suggest that just like when Jesus said to the church in Pergamum last week that they had some who held to the teaching of Balaam, and what he was, uh, what he was doing was using the Old Testament figure, Balaam, to explain the teaching of these false teachers, the Nicolaitans, in that city. So here Jesus calls this false teacher Jezebel, not necessarily because it was her actual name. I mean, could be a, a cosmic coincidence going on there. But to explain what's wrong here, Jezebel, if you know a little bit of Old Testament, it's a name that you've probably at least heard Jezebel is kind of one of those famously notorious villain characters in the Old Testament. You know, if you, if you make a list of the five baddies of the Old Testament, you probably run into a Jezebel in there. You know, or you, maybe a couple Jezebel and Ahab together. She was a, she was a queen or, or, or a, a wife of the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, she came from Tyre and Sidon. Um, but married Ahab, the king of Israel. Uh, He would also make the top five list, fun fact. And uh, uh, she came from Tyre and Sidon. You know, I say those words, but they they were traditional enemies of Israel, and they, they get called out a lot of times in the Old Testament for leading God's people off track. And, and very early in her existence in Israel, she was introducing and pushing the worship of false gods in Israel, particularly Baal, uh, she, she pushed that you could worship Baal alongside Yahweh. You could do both. You know, she also pushed Asherah, who was a, a fertility goddess, and, and they would have altars to Baal and Asherah on the, on the top of every mountain, in every high place. And on the surface, Jezebel's message to Israel was, you can do both. You can have both of these things. You can compromise. You can have Baal and you can have Yahweh at the same time. It's okay. But, you know, while she didn't outright do away with the worship of Baal, you know, she taught compromise, but in reality, she knew better. She knew that that's not how it works. She knew that darkness and light don't coexist. She had any prophet of Yahweh who stood against her killed. By the time you know, that, that Elijah's midway through his ministry, he's despairing because he feels that there are none left. And God has to tell him, no, there's some that I've hidden away. I've protected them. But there has been such an outright 
attack on the worship of the true God in Israel at that point, that, that there are so few. And this seems to be the issue that Jesus is condemning in Thyatira. They were housing a false teacher who taught that you could go both ways. You can compromise. Idol worship always tells you this, always tells you you can go both ways. You can have it both ways. But in reality, you, like, and it makes so much sense. It's so obvious when you say it like this. You can't worship darkness and light, right? You... You cannot worship the true God and surrender yourself to idols at the same time. You can't have it both ways. Compromise is one of Satan's most pervasive weapons, which he uses, he has used regularly throughout the ages. T take a look at a few examples for, from the last hundred years or so. Um, the, you will have heard of most of these. Uh, uh, the Nazis. You've heard of the Nazis, right? Indiana Jones films, if nothing else. But uh, uh, the Nazis came to power in Germany, right? And, and began enacting some of the most radically unchristian policies that have ever existed in any nation, at least in, the modern, in modern history. You know, such as the widespread extermination of people groups that they didn't like. You know, we can, we can look at that and just say outright, that's very unchristian, right? It doesn't, you know, love your neighbor unless you're wiping them out. It doesn't fit in there. Uh, now, churches in Germany faced the challenge to either compromise with the government there to do what they were doing, to go along with what they were doing and okay what they were doing, or to be persecuted themselves for disagreeing and standing up against that. This is not so different to the Roman situation, you see, where they had the choice of compromise or be persecuted. In one of the most... Christian nations in history, you know, pre and, and intra World War II Germany, you know, and that is by the number of people who claimed to be Christians and were involved in churches. So, one of the most apparently Christian nations in history, in, in, in that country, the vast majority of churches accepted the compromise. You know, you, you, go, just go and look up German church Nazi flag. In your, in your image search and see how many you get. There, there are much more compelling documents if you want actual statistics there. In fact, they didn't just accept it, they preached it. They preached the compromise and very often proclaimed the glories of the Nazi regime. Or look at Christians under communist regimes. Governments uh, that offer churches official status very often is what they happen in these countries and, and still happens in these countries. Uh, official status, if they'll just compromise in their teaching and call out any churches that refuse to go along. Uh, take, for instance, there was an interview um, with the BBC, fun fact, uh, of a, a pastor of a large Beijing church, uh, one of the official state-sanctioned churches, um, and, and he was quoted to say, we have to remember, this is the pastor of the church, remember? We have to remember, first of all, that we are citizens of this country. And we are citizens of the kingdom of God. That comes second. Compromise defined, right? Jesus will not have it. And in the end, neither will we. We 
If we try to serve God and anything, we end up serving anything but God. Jesus, Jesus told us as much. He said so in Luke, 13, Luke 16, 13. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and be devoted to the other, or you will uh, uh, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, and the word there is mammon. Sometimes it's translated as money, but it's a word which means kind of just the things of this world. Here's the reality. It's really easy, though, so easy for us to look at the official church under the communist regime and call that out, isn't it? Like, it's obvious from here. It's easy to see when a church in another context is walking in compromise. Just like it's really easy to see when a fellow Christian is living a compromised life, right? That's fairly obvious very often to us, isn't it? And we look at those Christians and those churches and we go, how can you not see? How can you be missing the level to which you've caved? You've given in. How can you not see how your works are being defined by allegiance to this world and not by allegiance to Jesus? They just seem blind, don't they? Isn't it baffling? And that should give us really serious cause for pause, shouldn't it? Because if they're walking in compromise and they seem blind to it, we have to ask the blindingly obvious question, don't we? Are there ways in which we are walking in compromise and we're just not seeing it? Here's an ironclad fact. This side of a new heavens and new earth, there will always be the temptation for Christians and for churches to compromise in every context. It doesn't matter where you are. It, it, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter whether you're city or country. It doesn't matter whether you're a big church or a small church. In a world which is subject to idols, where, where Christians still struggle with an old sinful self, where a kingdom of light is breaking in and a kingdom of darkness is passing away and fighting back, there will always be an existing temptation for each Christian and for every church to compromise their faith. The only way that there could not be, do you see, is if all sin had passed away. And I don't know if you've noticed, it hasn't. Not yet. Looking forward to the day. If you can't see the risk of compromise in your context and your life, then you're probably so compromised, so used to it, that you're blind to it. Now, I'm not saying if you can't see yourself compromising. We see churches in the Revelation that are not compromising. But there is always a temptation to compromise. There is always a risk of compromise. See, what doesn't happen is this. A church full of Christians doesn't tend to wake up one morning and go, you know what we need? More compromises. I've just I've, I felt the Lord putting it on my heart. We just need to compromise more. Let's find something Let's find something that's completely different to Jesus 
uh, and, and let's give some of our allegiance to that thing. I think this would be a good plan. You know, the church, the eldership gets together and they're like, hey, which, which compromise should we do? And then they bring it to the members and the members go, yeah, we'll do that compromise. And it's, and it's wonderful. And the, and the congregation just goes, hallelujah. No, what happens is that often incrementally, the culture bleeds into the church. Christians slowly decide that they can share the values of the world and the values of Christ, hold these things together. They decide that the priorities of the culture surrounding can be made compatible with the cultures of the kingdom of God. They, they compartmentalize, decide that there are parts of my life that the gospel doesn't really speak to very clearly, and so I can be instructed there by the world. I can follow the world's wisdom in there. They harmonize, decide that even though the Bible seems to disagree with the culture here, still it just feels so right that God couldn't really oppose this thing, right? This is so easy to see in others, like we said. Isn't it easy to look at a church? You know, we don't have to look at communist China to see this, right? We, isn't it easy to look at a church in a woke inner city sort of context, right? And see the ways in which they are blending in with that. That's, that's I find that easy to do. The ways that they're compromising. One of the traps, one of the traps of a day in which we have so much access to news and information and information about other churches and other Christians is that we can spend all of our time being outraged about what some other Christians are doing somewhere else and so remain distracted from the very real compromises, the very real battle we should be fighting here. And if everyone does that, then everyone keeps compromising, right? You know, if, if, if we spend all of our time lobbing bombs at the city church and going, you guys need to stop being so woke, and they keep lobbing bombs back at us and calling us out for something, like, you know, it, and, and no one looks at themselves and deals with the log in their own eye before dealing with the speck in their brother's eye, no one changes, right? Jesus presents himself to this church in Thyatira as the son of God who has an eye who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Remember if you were here for part 2 of this series those feet they refer back to a vision in Daniel of the empires of the earth represented in a statue that has crumbly feet and that's destined to fall is God's going to crush it. But Jesus, Jesus is the king of the one true empire, mighty and solid and unconquerable. We should not compromise. He deserves our allegiance. And then those eyes. I love those eyes and I'm terrified of them. Eyes like a flame of fire. Jesus sees. Jesus sees through our self-righteousness. Jesus sees through our double standards. Jesus sees through our hypocrisy. A lot of people outside the church 
are rightly outraged by hypocrisy in the church, and I have good news for them, Jesus is outraged too. And he sees. And if we're willing to listen, like he did for Thyatira, Jesus will reveal to us where we are walking in compromise as a people. question we need to ask is, how is the worldly culture of our context threatening to bleed into the church? How are the daily pressures of our lives tempting us to compartmentalise parts of our lives away from Jesus and to attempt to harmonise with Jesus that which in reality opposes him and which he opposes? Let me give you a, a few examples of how this could work out. And like, this is going to be different for different people, right? There's going to be ways in which this is kind of hitting all of us at the same time. And there's going to be ways in which this is hitting some of us and not others. In rural South Australia, let me make this a pop quiz. In rural South Australia, what is the main religion? Football. Sport. Woo, I'm so glad that worked. We live in a sports-based culture, right? Uh, our, our, our culture gathers around watching and playing sports. This is actually kind of true in the cities in Australia, but it's true on another level in the country because we don't have a lot of the other things that people go and do. So what people go and do? People go and gather around sports. Now, there's nothing wrong with sport, is there? Right? God gave us these bodies and he gave us them to use them and your involvement there can be a great mission field but be careful because the norm here is to give your highest allegiance to sports. Particularly if you're good. There is, which, which let's be real, um, not a huge risk for me but uh, <laughs> some of us, if you're good... There is going to come the day when you need to decide. In fact, there's going to come many days, many incremental moments when you need to decide if allegiance to Jesus and involvement in a local church will come second to involvement in a sports team. And you'll either step deeper with Jesus and count the cost or you will drift away from him. Don't rely on drifting in the right direction. If you throw a stick in a river, you'll never see it drift against the current. It's not just sports. You know, we can do this with work. We can do this with relationships. We can do this with all sorts of things that we put in the place of highest allegiance. Here's another one. We live in a culture that is devoted devoted, I say, not, not kind of interested in, but heavily devoted to slander and gossip in the country. Happens in the cities too. But like misinformation, you know, I've lived in a lot of different contexts in this country. Trust me on this. Misinformation flies in the country in a way that puts social media to shame. 
I, I once, I once, my favorite example of this is I once treated a guy in the clinic for a snake bite on a Thursday, and by the following Monday at a mum's group in another town, Crystal's being told about, uh, by the way, we, we decided not to give him any anti-venom because the risks outweighed the benefits at the time, and, uh, and by, but, but we had it right there, right? And, uh, and, and by the following Monday, so like, what's that, four days, um, feel free to check if John can count, um, by the Monday, Crystal goes to a mum's group and is told that someone got bitten by a snake on the wrong part of the body, by the way, and that no clinics on the entire York Peninsula stock anti-venom. Good grief. Four days! And it was spoken like gospel. Like this was ironclad. <laughs> they weren't being malicious. They were just passing on something that they didn't know whether it was true or not. Spreading falsehoods is very much seen as acceptable here, sometimes even as a virtue here. Do you know that in Romans chapter 1, you know, like, I, I feel like we often, we hear words like slander and gossip and we're like, wow, you know, we're doing pretty well if slander and gossip are our problems, right? You know, look at these other churches. They're sleeping around. Uh, you know, in Romans 1, Paul lists slander and gossip in a, in a list of serious sins. That's kind, it's kind of just preceded by murder and just followed by hating God. Oh. Oh, that kind of serious. Is the culture bleeding in? Are you being led in compromise by things outside of Christ? Here's one more. We live, sorry, we live in a culture that is happy for you to be a Christian if you can run the rest of your life like everyone else. If you can compartment off your work enough or your school enough or your social life enough to carry that kind of baseline of dishonesty or practice that everyone else does, that, that's kind of normal. Compartment off your socialising enough to approve of, of drunkenness and promiscuity. Now, the Bible is very clear. We must be happy to know the people outside the church who do such things. The answer is not compartment off my life from the world. The answer is not never talk to anyone. They don't know Jesus. Of course, they're going to walk in a way that is contrary to knowing Jesus. And of course, we want them to come to know Jesus. But we also need to live in a way that is markedly different. A way that is in the world, but not of the world. Visibly. Church, it's so important that we understand this. There's a real cost in this world to refusing to compromise with the world. If you haven't run into it yet, you will. Refusing to split your allegiance, refusing to worship the idols of our culture. That, that sports person I just mentioned might miss out on a professional level of sports one day. Might be excluded from a local level of sports now, simply for when they can't play. 
The person who refuses gossip now might be refused welcome with those who feel challenged by that or who feel that you just don't take part in their conversations very well. The Christian worker might lose out for being honest, for being compassionate in the workplace. Christians in Thyatira lost financial security in order to remain loyal to Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the pastors in Nazi Germany who refused to compromise with the Nazis and was subsequently locked in a concentration camp, he referred to the loss of following Jesus with a very biblical word. He called it the cross. He wrote this. I think we've got a slide for this, actually. Do we? Maybe. I'll just read it. He wrote, The cross is neither misfortune nor harsh fate. Instead, it is that suffering which comes from our allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. The cross is not random suffering, but necessary suffering. The cross is not suffering that stems from natural existence. It is suffering that comes from being Christian. The essence of the cross is not suffering alone. It is suffering and being rejected. Strictly speaking, it is being rejected for the sake of Jesus Christ, not for the sake of any other attitude or confession. A Christianity that no longer took discipleship seriously, remade the gospel into only the solace of cheap grace. Church, let's never be a cheap grace church. Jesus does not, compromise, does not tolerate compromise in the life of his church. Did you see that in the passage? Did you feel uncomfortable with the words of Jesus? when he says that if his church continues to compromise, he's going to come and he's going to do some nasties. Why? Because Jesus won't let his church be enslaved to sin. We forget sometimes that we serve the judge of the world who loves us. Now, certainly... We do sin. Do not hear in this a call to be perfect. I mean, the Bible does call us, says, be perfect as I am perfect. But we're not. We try, but we're not. We fail. We sin. We need forgiveness every day. And he's always ready to give it, having paid for it with his blood. But he will not tolerate his people willfully choosing to live a life contrary to the gospel, refusing to turn away from such ways when confronted with them. Each of the seven divine oracles, the royal edicts of Revelation 2 to 3, ends, as we said, with a promise to the one who conquers. Remember, these are not just calls to personal improvement in these messages. These are calls to conquer by heaven's definition of conquering. And what does conquering look like? Conquering looks like counting the cost of being a disciple of Jesus 
and being willing not to compromise with the ways of this world, even if it means we lose out in this life. And we do it joyfully. Because of the promises. Listen to this. Jesus says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This is a a promise that comes in later in the Revelation. They will reign with him. Isn't that crazy? Like, Like this, what Jesus is doing here is he is quoting from Psalm 2. If you know a bit about the Psalms, you might know that Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's it's, it's probably the clearest psalm pointing forward to King Jesus and looks forward to him reigning over the earth. To Christians who will lose out, who will lose power, who will lose prosperity in this life, Jesus is shedding new light on their current situation. He's telling them things are not as they seem. You may be crushed now, but he's making a promise that is in some sense even for now and primarily for the age to come. Right now, we reign with him. Revelation 1 says he has made us a kingdom and priests. Even though it may be hard, even though we may lose in a worldly way, we are part of the royal reign of Jesus spreading across this world. How is his reign known now? Primarily through the spread of the gospel. And we are reigning with him now when the gospel is spreading through us. And on the final day of his return, he, we will reign with him forever and ever. It's hard not to accidentally break into the hallelujah chorus when you say something like that. <laughs> This is a promise that Revelation is going to repeat. Like I said, those who lose for Jesus in this age will win with Jesus, will reign with Jesus in the one to come. Those who refuse compromise now will not regret it in the day to come. But still, isn't it hard to keep going? You know, day to day. Waves of temptations, knowing the loss. Isn't it hard to continue on faithful? Which is, I think, why Jesus makes his second promise here. He says, I will give him the morning star. Revelation 22, Jesus is going to say, I am the bright morning star. In each letter so far, Jesus has made a promise that ultimately was a promise of himself to the believers who overcome. An eternal closeness with our Saviour is our ultimate inheritance. But don't miss the beauty in the imagery here. Daryl Johnson says, The morning star, I think there's a slide for this one too. The morning star usually appears at the darkest time of the night about two or three o'clock in the morning. 
It usually emerges at that point at which the night is as dark as it is going to get. When it appears, there is no sign of the dawn. But when it appears, very faint and small at first, you know that the night cannot withstand the dawn. I love that phrase. It is just a matter of time until the dawn wipes the night away. When it gets hard, when the world seems to offer such good things, when we feel like it would just be easier to cave and enjoy living on the other side of the fence, look to the morning star. Look to Jesus. Because he died and rose. So we know that this world will not remain this way. This is not how it's going to be. Because he died and rose, we know that he is reigning even now. Because he died and rose, we know that the dawn is coming. We know that he will return for all to see. We know that every way that we look foolish in the world right now for following him will be clearly shown to be wisdom in a day to come. We look to him, church, and we press on. And look, let me say it. Maybe your eyes haven't been on the bright morning star. Maybe, maybe all this talk of compromise this morning has got you squirming in your seat and going, oh gosh. Jesus doesn't, you know, he says, even of Jezebel, he says, I've given her time to repent. He wants us to repent. He wants us to turn. And his arms are open. He's waiting for us. Take the chance today. Confess your compromise to him. Tell him how you've been turning away and ask him to come in and change you. Ask him to come in and show you his goodness that is better than the world. Ask him to fix your eyes again on the coming of the dawn through the bright morning star. And if you haven't known him at all, if you're not one who knows the hope of the dawn that is to come, today can be the day. Today you can trust in him. Today you can be saved. Would you pray with me? Actually, what I'll do is I'm going I'm to pray and then I'm going to give you a minute just to, just to sort anything out you need to between you and Jesus. God, our God, your eyes see through us and we praise you for it. You don't leave us in our compromise and our foolishness. And we praise you for it. You call us back into the joy of the Lord. We praise you for it. Lord Jesus, we tend to falter. We are a people who have, who have tolerated compromise in our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would call it to our minds and hearts now and then wash it away. We ask that we would be able to turn in genuine repentance now and trust in Jesus in his death and resurrection for us.
Lord Jesus, you are the bright morning star. When our lives seem dark, when it seems there isn't any hope, when it seems that the darkness is making such a compelling argument, an unavoidable argument, when sin seems to hold so much sway on our hearts, help us, Lord, to look to you. We trust in you, Lord. Help our unbelief. Help us to trust more. Be at work in our lives, doing away with our compromises and leading us deeper into trusting and following our Lord Jesus. Amen.